Good morning. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to read the first three verses. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Holy Scripture says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your holy word. And Father, I pray that your words would dwell richly in our hearts, and that you would transform our hearts, our minds, our priorities, our relationships, pray that you would cause true unity and peace and mutual love to flourish in and through our church family. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So it says uh, in in Colossians chapter 3 to let let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you have been called or to which you were called in one body. God's will for our church family is that we flourish together in peace, in in peaceful relationships, that we would all be governed and shaped by the peace of Christ. In in the sermon last week kind of laid a foundation for why peace within the body of Christ is so important. And now, uh, starting this week and for the next several weeks, I want to set before you some very specific tactics or strategies that would help us to actually do the work of preserving and promoting true peace within the body of Christ. Now, in this particular message, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on verse number two, But before I get to what I've prepared on verse 2, I want to uh, just to set it up a little bit by getting a lay of the land of verses 1 to 3. So notice notice at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. When he says, I a prisoner for the Lord, he, he, he is immediately... Uh, conveying a sense of of weightiness and sober-mindedness and seriousness to the instruction that he's about to be giving us. If if you knew that that someone was sipping lemonade at a at a seaside resort and pondering the wonderful philosophical mysteries of the universe, and they just wanted to send you a nice little uh, letter to give you some things to think about, you you would you would you would 
take that with a certain uh, lack of urgency. You might ponder it, but it's not like it's a matter of life or death. But, but here is a man, the Apostle Paul, called into the service of Christ, who is, he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. He, he's actually been traveling all around the Mediterranean world in obedience to Christ and at great risk to himself proclaiming the gospel and facing opposition and persecution and suffering and imprisonment. And he's taking great pains to spend himself and to be spent for the the building up of the body of Christ. He's literally giving his life to this God-appointed task. And, 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 and Paul's suffering is itself a, a reflection of the, the ultimate suffering that Christ went through for us. So we should be thinking about, okay, out of Christ's suffering and then out of the apostles' suffering, this instruction comes to us and he, he says, uh, therefore, there also at the beginning of chapter 4, which means that the instruction that he's about to give us is building upon what he's been talking about in chapters 1 through 3. What has he been talking about in chapters 1 through 3? The, the formation of the church. God's eternal plan through the Lord Jesus Christ was to purchase a people, redeem a people from every tribe and tongue, Jew and Gentile, and to bring them together in one body, and God accomplished that by sending his son who shed his blood in order to make peace, and this is the, this is the community, the community of believers in which God is actively at work by the Holy Spirit. It says at the end of chapter 2 that, that we are being built up together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, and so this is the, this is the, this is the work of God. This is the dwelling place of God. This is a, a holy temple. This is the body and bride of Christ. And Paul is going to be telling us to live in light of that reality. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, it's not, a, not a suggestion, it's not food for thought. He, he is he's exhorting us, beseeching us, urging us, appealing to us to live a certain way. And that way, he says, is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you think about, think about two things, you have your, you have your walk, right, the, the way that you actually live, and then you have the calling to which you have been called. And I'll, I'll get more into the details of that in just a moment. But you, ha- you have these two things, and Paul is saying that they ought to correspond to one another. You ought to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The, the, the calling, the, uh, the, the truth of the gospel, the, the work and will of God, those things actually ought to shape the way that you conduct your everyday manner of life. And it's worth asking the question, what is the calling to which you have been called? It seems to me that in the context of Ephesians, the, the emphasis is actually on the hope that we have through Christ. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, 
Paul is, is uh, he's praying for the, the believers, and he says, he, he's praying that, um, in verse 18, that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, and then he says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then you see similar language in chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So this calling to which you have been called relates very much to the hope that we have in Christ. And when you see that word hope in the New Testament, it is, it is directing our attention to the future. We, we, we have a confident expectation of God's good and holy purposes coming to pass. And as you read through the book of Ephesians, you, Paul gives us some of those things that we're looking forward to. We, we, we have a glorious inheritance in Christ that we shall one day receive. It says in chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 7, that we will be... Uh, pondering and enjoying the immeasurable riches of God's grace forever. That, that we're in the process, at the end of chapter 2, we're, we're in the process of the, that holy temple being built up as a dwelling place for God. And one day that work of God shall be complete. And Paul envisions that completeness in chapter 5, uh, verse, uh, verse uh, twenty. 6 and 27, especially verse 27. Let me just read it from from verse 25 of chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without Blemish. That's, that's, the, that's the end game. The, 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 the body of Christ shall be complete, shall have come to maturity, and every, every vestige of sin, every blemish, every wrinkle, every deficiency, completely and totally gone, and only beauty and perfection and holiness as we are glorified together with Christ. Now, uh, what, what, so what, what Paul is telling us is that we ought, to, we ought to live now in the light of that future reality that God is going to bring about. And you know, to, to have that kind of a hope and to not let it shape your everyday life is insane. I mean, we, we all know what it is like for lesser hopes to shape our conduct today, right? Adrian and Abby have the confident expectation of being married in a few months, and that confident expectation of what shall happen in a few months is shaping the way that they live and plan and think today. The, 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 to give a very simple example, the praise team just shared three songs with us. On Thursday, they had the confident expectation that they would, in fact, share these three songs with us. And they were influenced by that to actually practice and rehearse and refine themselves so that they would share it well. 
Well, if, if, if lesser hopes shape our everyday conduct, then how much more should this great and amazing and ultimate hope shape our, our life today? One day, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as fellow believers, as members of the same body, every blemish will be removed. And Paul doesn't say, eh, sit back and be glad that that's going to happen someday. He's like, no, in, in light of the fact that that's going to happen someday, now, even today, in the concrete reality of your relationships with one another, which is where he's going in verses 2 and 3, let, let that future hope shape the way that you live today. Take steps today in the direction of that hope, in the direction of that ultimate healing and holiness and beauty and glory that shall take place. And, and this is something that we're called to do together. In fact, that's, that's, that's what comes out in chapter 4, verse 4, right? When he says, just as you were called to the one hope, we have one hope. We all share in this same hope together. If a, if a, if a sports team would band together and work together, or a, or a production company, a drama company would work closely together in order to prepare for that championship game, or in order to, order to sh- sh- uh, prepare for that performance. Well, we ourselves are called to do this together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul is he's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and that's a general principle, and he could talk about, and we'll talk about many different things, but what's the first specific thing he talks about after telling us to live that way? The first thing he talks about is our relationships with one another as fellow believers, and you see that in verses 2 and 3. And I'm going to focus on verse 2, but just to jump ahead to verse 3, just for a moment, you can see that the, this concern that Paul has, he, he calls us to this this action. And it's first of all an action of the heart when, when he calls us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There, there's a, a, a heart motivation, an earnest desire to see the, the peace of Christ flourishing in our midst. And then and then that, if you're actually eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, then you're actually going to take concrete steps to maintain, to preserve, to sustain and uphold the unity and peace that we enjoy in Christ. And so that's the, that's the larger goal. And verse 2 gives us a, a very practical tactic to employ in pursuit of that larger goal to preserve and promote true peace within the body of Christ. So let's, uh, let's kind of jump in here and do a deep dive on verse 2. i, I, I got to be honest with you. I, while I was up here, my, my shoelace became untied. It's annoying me. So instead of just standing here, and I'm just going to tie it really quickly. So... <laughs> You got to be honest with one another. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm free. 
I'm free. The, the tactic, okay, the, the tactic is to bear with one another. You see that right in verse 2. Bearing with one another. Bear with one another, with one another put up with one another, in, endure with or persevere with one another, tolerate one another. Okay? Paul uses this same word in 1 Corinthians 4.12 to describe his response to persecution. He says, when persecuted, we endure, endure, bearing with. Okay? Similarly, he calls attention to the fact that uh, the Thessalonians are enduring afflictions, 2 Thessalonians 1.4. And so we can see that having to bear or, or to bear with or endure something implies that the something represents a burden or a pressure or a stressor that is bearing down upon us. And Paul uses the same word to describe ungodly people in 2 Timothy chapter 4 who will not endure sound teaching. Sound teaching makes demands. It reproves, rebukes, corrects, and exhorts, and instead of gladly enduring the demands of God's word, some people just want their ears tickled, their passions affirmed, and their sins coddled. So just as persecution or affliction places a pressure upon us, and just as sound teaching places a demand upon you, so people, each other, people place a pressure upon you. In the instruction to bear with or endure one another, the point is that other people constitute a burden, a pressure, a stressor. And it is really important to just be straightforwardly honest about that fact. Let's not pretend that 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 challenge doesn't exist. It does exist. The Apostle Paul knew that it would exist within the body of Christ, and he addressed it directly. Imperfect people attempting to negotiate life with other imperfect people involves many challenges. Within the body of Christ, there are many differences among us. We differ from one another in a variety of ways. We differ from one another in terms of our cultural background. We differ from one another in terms of our gifting, our role within the body. We differ from one another in terms of our perspective on specific issues. People differ from one another in terms of their personality, temperament, habits, past experiences, present expectations. People differ from one another in terms of their weaknesses and the temptations to which they are most vulnerable. And all of those differences are, take place within a context of the primary problem which is, I am still prone to sin and poor judgment, and you are still prone to sin and poor judgment. And so all of those differences get thrown into the mix with our remaining sinfulness, and that makes life very interesting, very interesting interpersonal dynamics and relational pressures. Don't wish that everyone was like you and thought like you, because that would, that would make things very boring. God wants things to be interesting and, and, and for there to be issues that we have to work on so that we can grow together in the grace of God. Now, the mere act of forbearance, 
is not a distinctly Christian action. Okay? If it just just in, in, in the ordinary world of sinners under God's common grace, okay? Fam- unbelieving families, unbelievers in the workplace, unbelievers in various group settings, practice varying degrees of forbearance. It is, it is absolutely essential to getting anything done over the long haul. You just have to put up with other people. But, but what's, what's, what is distinctly Christian about the forbearance that is urged upon us in verse 2 is that it is accompanied by some beautiful and very gracious attitudes. We, 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 are, we are not to bear with one another for selfish or utilitarian or common sense reasons. We, 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 uh, we have much bigger reasons. J- just, just do a little exercise for a minute. Just think about how undoable church life would be if verse 2 were not obeyed. Okay, so just, just look at verse 2 and let me, let me give you uh, an opposite rendering of the instruction there. With all pride and roughness, with impatience, dismissing one another in hate, eager to break the unity of the Spirit in the shattering of hostility. No church-going person would say, yeah, that's what I want to do. But how easily we play the part. So we have, to, we have to give ourselves to this task of bearing with one another with distinctly Christian, Holy Spirit-produced attitudes in our mix, and I want to go through them. Okay, first, humility, with all humility, right? With all lowliness of mind. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, You cannot graciously endure your fellow Christians and diligently maintain the unity of the Spirit when you regard yourself and your ambitions and your self-importance and your honor as the most important thing. C.S. Lewis said that pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's also the complete anti-church state of mind. Who do you think you are? As a recipient of God's exceedingly marvelous grace, you have absolutely nothing to be proud about. No thanks to you, God has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3. No thanks to you, God has lavished plentiful redemption and blood-bought forgiveness and the riches of his grace upon you, Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8. No thanks to you, you have obtained an everlasting inheritance in Christ and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. The only thing that you contributed to your salvation is the sin from which you needed to be saved. You were dead in sin, enslaved to sinful passions, enchanted by the world, entrapped by the devil, destined for hell, but God in sheer grace made you alive and raised you up and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. No thanks to you, you have access in one spirit to the Father through Christ. 
No thanks to you, you are a member of God's family and a partaker of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You have everything, and that by divine mercy and not by your own merit. Knowing this exceedingly marvelous grace doesn't make a person proud. It makes you humble. It makes you lowly of mind. It makes you glad to see God pour out his exceedingly marvelous grace upon other people who are just as undeserving as you are. And when you realize that God himself is the one who is bestowing grace upon sinners and bringing them into his family, what can, what can we do except to have a humble regard for the gracious works of the Lord in saving people? My fellow Christian was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. My fellow Christian has been brought near to God by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2.13. My fellow Christian has been incorporated into God's holy temple, Ephesians 2.21. How can I possibly look askance at my brother or sister? How can I look down upon him or her? How can I treat my fellow Christian with contempt? With all humility, you don't need a little dose of humility. You need a big dose of humility. With all humility, bear with one another in love. Second, gentleness. Another big dosage required, right? Not a little gentleness, but with all gentleness, with, with meekness. If you have a humble frame of mind that holds your fellow believers in high regard, then you will treat them with gentleness and handle them with care. It is often said that gentleness and meekness should be differentiated from weakness, and this observation is, is exactly correct. A weak person doesn't have any power to leverage, but a strong person does have power to leverage. It could be the power of intelligence or the power of a quick wit or the power of influence, or the pow power of wealth, or the power of official authority, or the power of physical strength. Whereas proud people leverage their power for their own selfish benefit, which often means stepping on people, running over people, using people, disregarding people. Humble, pe humble people operate with restraint because their priority is to bless up and build and honor and protect their fellow Christians. Humble believers are not like a bull in a china shop. They are gentle and meek, considerate and kind, restrained and self-controlled. Their disposition is not to lord it over others or put others down, but to serve others and lift others up. Now, to cultivate the attitude of gentleness it is helpful to remember that, according to Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Your brothers and sisters are God's workmanship, his, his handiwork. And it may be helpful for you to think of your brother or sister as being in God's workshop, as it were. God is actively working on your brothers and sisters. He's sanctifying them, molding them, stretching them, shaping them, and developing them into a more faithful image bearer of Christ. And then, and then you or I come along, pass by God's workshop, and we come by with critical comments, dismissive attitudes, a rough manner, 
which is all very out of place in God's workshop. God delights in your brothers and sisters even as he takes the chisel to remove one more blemish from their life. You should see a sign over every believer that says, God's handiwork, sanctification in progress, handle with care. Third, patience, with patience, with long-suffering. If the emphasis of humility is to hold your brothers and sisters in high regard, and if the emphasis of gentleness is to treat your brothers and sisters with great care, then the emphasis of patience is not to be easily provoked by their imperfections and flaws. One commentator calls long-suffering perseverance under provocation. And in Ephesians 4.2, we're talking about provocation from fellow believers. Now, people may fool themselves into thinking that they have patience at the beginning of the day before any relational turbulence has surfaced, but how often does that very first disturbance prove that you have no patience at all? You felt patient, you felt patient until patience was required. Feeling serene on a quiet winter morning with coffee in hand and a warm blanket over you as you sit in your comfy chair is not the same thing as being truly patient in the face of people who are troubling you, shouting at you, disrespecting you, ignoring you, opposing you, disappointing you. To be patient is to not be irritable not be easily angered, not be easily frustrated. Patient people maintain their equilibrium among the relational chaos. They are slow to anger. Patient people do not have a short fuse. They have a very long fuse, and they are able to suffer long with people. We must remember the perfect patience of our Lord. As it says in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then a word from the Old Testament The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. We must remember that God is patiently at work in his workshop, as it were, sanctifying his people. If God is so patient with my brothers and sisters... Why should I be impatient with them? If God is not finished with my brothers and sisters, how can I ever say, I'm done with them? If God hasn't written you off, who am I to write you off? If God hasn't abandoned his church, why should you or I? If God, who is perfectly holy, and has exhaustive knowledge of all of your sins, loves you, and is gentle with you, and is 
patient with you and is kind toward you, then who in the world do I think I am? I only, I only get a slice. I only get a very small slice of your failings. And I can't put up with you? Who do I think I am? It might help you to cultivate patience if you take to heart this quote attributed to C.S. Lewis. The quote is, don't judge a man by where he is because you don't know how far he has come. Now, this, this is, if you think about this in terms of the process of sanctification, this is really, really helpful. How easily we can entertain critical thoughts toward a brother or sister because of some annoyance or failure or bad habit. And yet, we are ignorant of the fact that this brother or sister has grown tremendously in the Lord over the course of several years. For some strange reason, we want to focus on the visible flaws that remain. Why? We ought to see our brothers and sisters through the lens of redemption. In Christ, they are chosen, holy, dearly loved, clothed in the righteousness of Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Don't have a critical eye for the imperfections that remain. Instead, have a grateful eye for the progress already made. And if you don't know about this progress that has already taken place in your brothers and sisters, then you must get to know them. Don't go, don't, don't, don't go out into the world and talk about how wonderful it is to learn about people's stories if you're unwilling to get to know one another. You see, it's nice to read a biography or play the documentary because frankly, I can turn it off or put the book on the shelf whenever I want. You know what's required to get to know one another? Forbearance. Because you got to sit down and you got to listen. You got to try to understand. You have no idea the transformation that would take place in your perspective on people if you understood their present challenges and flaws in the context of the larger story of God's grace that is operating at work in their lives. You've got to get to know one another. The Apostle Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In other words, show hospitality to each other. Don't be strangers to each other with forbearance. With grace. Your brothers and sisters are not nearly as flawed as they would have been had the gospel never captured their hearts. Don't judge a man by where he is. Remember where he's come from. In Ephesians 4.2, the attitude of patience is closely tied to the action of bearing with one another. In fact, patience could actually be rendered forbearance. In which case, the verse would say, with forbearance, bearing with one another. Or, or the verse could be rendered, with patience, having patience with one another. That's the idea. Do not be easily provoked by their imperfections and flaws, but instead make a lot of room for them. Make a lot of room for your brothers and sisters in Christ and their flaws, mishaps, and offending actions. It's the only way 
to press on. Now, in talking about humility, gentleness, and patience, we're really talking about different aspects of love, aren't we? The final attitude or disposition that Paul mentions in verse 2 is love. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another is what we must do, and in love is how we must do it. And think, think about the strong connection uh, between the other three attitudes in Ephesians 4.2 and the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Patience. Gentleness. Love does not envy or boast. Gentleness. Humility. Love is not arrogant or rude. Humility. Gentleness. Love does not insist on its own way. Humility. Gentleness. Love is not irritable or resentful. Patience. Love holds others in high regard, treats them with great care, and is slow to take offense. Love bears all things and endures all things, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Now, in the context of Ephesians 1 to 4, however, uh, there are, there's actually a, something more significant and foundational that needs to be said about love, because love is, is really key to the flow of thought in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. First of all, love is utterly foundational to our Christian life and to our existence as a church. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Our entire existence as Christians is anchored in divine love that stretches back to eternity. This means, of course, that God's love was upon us while we were in the thick darkness of our sin, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Rich in mercy, great love, grace and kindness. God's love for his people stretches back to eternity and then in time God with great love toward us reaches down and rescues us out of, out of the depths of sin and raises, raises us up to the heights of heaven and his loving design toward us stretches into the eternal future where we will enjoy the immeasurable riches of his grace forever. The heartbeat of the Christian life is to grasp this love of God, which is what Paul prays for in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. He prays, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The bottom line reality in the instruction to bear with one another in love is not what our love does, though it does do a great deal, but to know the love of Christ which is underneath 
all of the instruction. Do you, do you know this love of Christ? We can wax eloquent about the virtues of humility, gentleness, and patience. We can ponder the benefit of bearing with one another and its role in preserving peace within the body. We can talk about the value of being unified in the spirit. We can think it, we can think it fitting to honor one another. All good things in their place, but we will barely get off the ground if we don't grasp the love of Christ. The goodwill of the Lord for us, for me, for you. The goodwill of the Lord toward us is foundational to us extending goodwill to others. As Paul says at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then he goes right into chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the words of one hymn, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And just think about those last two lines that we sang before the, before the message. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. Christ is the one who did not consider his high position, equality with the Father, something to be used for his own advantage. But rather in great love, he left the comforts and glories of heaven in order to dwell among sinners on earth. He humbled himself, taking the form of a human servant, living in obedience to the Father, serving his people, and at last suffering the shame of the cross in order to win us back to the Father. He offered up his body to be broken so that we would have peace with God and be active participants in his kingdom of peace. Is it too much to ask that we gladly put up with the other imperfect recipients of his grace? If this seems like too much to us, then our perspective is warped and we must return to the message of the cross, which shows us that Jesus is the embodiment of love and patience, gentleness and humility. Learn all humility and gentleness from the humble and gentle Messiah, and you will learn that it is difficult to be offended and provoked when one is truly humble. For one thing, if I am humble and lowly in mind, then I am small in my own eyes, and I am not super impressed with myself, and I don't have an ego trip, and I see myself as a servant of others. With such an attitude, it's hard to be offended or humiliated because I already occupy a low position in my own mind. So how can others cut me down? And from that low position, I am glad to serve others, bear with others, and elevate others. I'm not speaking in the first person because I've mastered these things. I'm simply trying to personalize it and reason it out. Furthermore, very importantly, this humility and lowliness of mind is not the same thing as having a negative self-image. 
The humble believer does not have a negative self-image, but knows that in Christ he occupies a high position, chosen, holy, dearly loved, seated with Christ, destined for glory, clothed with such privilege, others cannot undermine your confidence and joy. Thus, secure in Christ, you are able to stand firm in the gospel and exhibit, exhibit gentleness, patience, and goodwill toward people who rub you the wrong way. Now, I want to conclude with just some very direct exhortations. Brothers and sisters, bear with one another in love. Do not bear with one another with resentment, with criticism, with frustration, with qualifying conditions, or with a mental scorecard. That would be fleshly forbearance, and that is not the way of Christ. Bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love will mean that you are not running your mouth telling other people how much you're putting up with. The patient believer who endures much speaks very little about what he or she is enduring. The Lord knows and will reward generously, and that is enough. Humbly, gently, and patiently bearing with others in love will mostly be done quietly and contentedly between you and the Lord. Self-congratulation, self-pity, self-promotion are totally out of place. You gladly forbear as a matter of course because it is the Lord Christ whom you are following. Bearing with one another in love will mean bearing with those who aren't good at bearing with others in love. You will be tempted to think that this is not fair, but fairness is beside the point. There is nothing fair about abundant mercy, rich grace, and great love. Learn to glory in the unfairness of it all. If you'd like to be part of a community that is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, don't wait for someone else to start. You start. You obey Christ. Demonstrate humility to those who seem proud. Demonstrate gentleness to those who seem inflexible. Demonstrate patience to those who seem ill-tempered. Demonstrate love to those who seem to have such little love to give. Such people are in real need of you putting up with them. Do this and in love. Be glad to put up with fellow Christians for Jesus' sake. Finally, bearing with one another in love will mean praying for those who get on your nerves. Just imagine that those people who get on your nerves generate a lot of conversation. Not between you and them, not between you and other people, between you and the Lord. They could use the prayer, and you could use the praying. Someone once made the point that we should not be like the devil who accuses the brethren, but rather we should be like Christ who intercedes for the brethren. This is true. And if he is interceding for them, why shouldn't I? As Don Carson said about his father, he was never good at putting people down, except on his prayer list. Father, I pray 
that you would do a great work in our midst, that your Holy Spirit would produce these qualities in us and through us as we increasingly grasp the riches of your grace for us. Help us to see one another through the lens of your grace. Cultivate humility, gentleness, patience, and Christ-like love in our hearts. Father, I pray that you indeed would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen.